0: This is Hans.
1: This is Heidi. And this is Parent Town.
0: A podcast where we explore stories of parenting in hopes that they can connect us and just maybe make the world a little easier to understand.
1: Hi everyone, welcome to Parent Town. This is Heidi. Hans and I have always had the goal by creating this podcast, we really just want to share the power of story and how taking a moment to invest time into listening to others share their stories, whatever those are of either actively parenting or of being parented, we can learn or observe our own biases or just walk away with questions. We are so thrilled to finally have our website up and running. You can find us at www.parent-town.com, where you can listen to past podcasts along with other supplemental information and helpful links that accompany each theme of the podcast. November was Transgender Awareness Month, and with that in mind, we wanted to explore this topic with more depth. In this episode, we hear from Dr. Rami Magid, a Minneapolis pediatrician who heads the Pediatric Gender and Sexual Health Clinic at Hennepin County Medical Center. And we also hear from Martha and Allie, two parents who are raising transgender kids in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Here are their stories. Rami, I just need to know about the history of the Pediatric Gender and Sexual Health Program at HCMC's and then also your role in it.
0: Yeah, so I came to HCMC early 2015 from another clinic where I had been working, and I had been interested for some time in this population of kids. It started with wanting to explore where are the needs in the pediatric population in the state of Minnesota, so whose needs are not being met and looking into the literature specifically, the Wilder Blue Cross Blue Shield study that was 2010, identified children of color, basically, and LGBTQ kids as groups of kids who were, who were most affected by unequal health care. I'm interested in my long-term career in addressing both of those needs. Right. This seemed like a little more achievable There is a treatment for some of the need in the trans community specifically. Um, So there are kids that I, with my qualifications, can uh, address right now. There are many societal type of things that we all have to do together. This just felt like something that I can start addressing. So I started talking with folks who were already doing it. So specifically, Dr. Eric Meininger here in the Twin Cities, who's just amazing. I mean, he's the one who's been doing this for the pediatric population the longest. Started talking with him, talked to the folks out at Lurie Children's in Chicago, went out there. They were really welcoming. Let me come out and observe them for a day. Mm. And when I expressed to the folks at HCMC, my department, the pediatrics department that, hey, you know, I want to start a clinic that is serving the LGBTQ pediatric community, there was no hesitation. They were immediately like, great, this is what we do. We take care of people who might not otherwise get taken care of. So I was very pleasantly surprised and also sort of not surprised because it's just sort of their vibe. So, yeah, they said, all right, just tell us what we can do and we'll figure it out. And so I did some more exploring and learning, a lot of learning from the folks at Family Tree Hall were amazing, uh, Dr. Meininger, and once we felt kind of ready, we said, okay, we're going to devote X amount of time per week to this, and we have this great setup already in our pediatric clinic where we have an embedded psychologist for all our kids that we see. Anytime there's a need, we can just say, hey, we you know, have a psychologist here. I think it would be beneficial. We introduce them. They can talk. It's wonderful. Um, so... Together, um, she and I started putting things together to, to make sure that we were holistically mm-hmm. addressing the kids' and the family's needs, mm-hmm. because the paradigm for managing this, for helping these kids, is not just medicine. It's mental health maintenance and medication, mm-hmm. and sometimes just the mental health side, and not even medication, depending on the kids' needs and mm-hmm. wants.
1: Another question is when you opened the doors, what were your expectations of what would happen and then what actually ended up happening?
0: Yeah. So my expectations were, were varied. On the one hand, I was worried that nobody would come, you know, yeah. that, that there wouldn't be a need. And I thought there was a need, but nobody wants this service. That's not what happened for sure. The other hope or the other expectation was that this would be a variety of presentations, meaning some kids who were trans, some who were gay, some who were lesbian, the latter two maybe just seeking primary care from a doc who is you know accepting, open, that kind of thing. What has happened so far that it is that it has been almost entirely um, transgender, gender-questioning, genderqueer kids and their families... In most cases, they're seeking either puberty suppression plus-minus hormone therapy, depending on age. Some are quite young kids, and they're nowhere near needing puberty suppression yet, but the parents, very awesome parents who Mm -hmm. just want to sort of establish relationships and get more education and, and affirm their kids' gender identity
1: how do people get to you and then who are your families who are these kids and is there a constant threat of need for them or questions that they have
0: yeah so the first question how do they get to us mostly it's been these long wait lists Mm -hmm. at other clinics the university and family tree clinics So when I was still learning about how we were going to get this started, asking around, I would ask about the need and the demand. And I was assured by folks that, yep, we got these long wait lists, so there will be people coming in. And I didn't appreciate how long those wait lists were Mm -hmm. and and how great the need is. So finding us because those other programs are saying we recommend that you go find Dr. McGee at HCMC because there's a really long wait, so that's number 1. The other is and this is starting to pick up as kind of word of mouth in the community. Sure. I'm kind of fortunate enough to live across the alley from Cafe Southside, which is also yes. Minnesota Trans Health Coalition the folks who run the cafe run Like the- just go T-C. across yeah. the alley. Right. And so and I had met those folks and chit chatted with yeah. them here and there in the past, and then as this got going, I reached out again and was like, "Hey, I'm getting this clinic started. Let me know if there's any way that I can learn from the families about what's needed? That was actually kind of how it started. I said I don't, I don't know what people want in a clinic. You know, could I somehow meet some families and, yeah. and find out what they want? And they were really nice enough to connect me with this group that had been meeting there weekly for I don't know how long, and I had no idea.
1: A group of um, like meet families, yeah, families that, would come, okay. that meet
0: there on Sundays. You know, the kids hang out and the adults have coffee and talk about stuff. So I met with. Some parents and the kids, and got their take on it.
1: So, what were they wanting when, when you asked them these questions, and these families came back to you, was there a thread that you saw that was yeah? So, a lot
0: of parents of younger kids, it was an affirming environment of a doctor who could say, "Yes, your kid is special, just like every (laughs) other kid, and we'll take care of his or her health." And we'll be respectful of who he or she wants to be referred to as, and when the time comes, I will help you look for the physical signs that it's time to start talking about treatment. Part of it is that they want somebody who's um, knowledgeable enough to know when we got to jump on the, you know, medication. Sure.
1: Are some families there that aren't necessarily looking for treatment, like some kids that might not transition?
0: Yeah, so with the little kids, only 10 to, some say 20-ish percent, some sources say 40-ish percent, but let's say 10 to 40 percent of the little kids pre-adolescents will go on to have what we call gender dysphoria um, into adolescence and adulthood, right? So this leaves a big chunk that won't continue to feel that way. So I think all the parents that I met in that setting, in the cafe setting, and then also in the clinic they really just want to be supportive and they're not yet thinking, I definitely am or definitely am not going to do hormones. Mm. They're just thinking, I want my kid to be safe and happy and healthy and tell me what I got to do to make that happen.
1: In regards to the feedback from the medical community and evolution of this medical worldview, do you feel like it's changed, that outlook?
0: You know, I feel so young in this field. I'm sure if you ask. Doctor Meininger, he and Dr. Deb Thorpe that of Park nicollet I mean, they have been doing this for a long time and so they've seen a lot of change. Doctor Meininger was treating kids who were homeless because they'd been kicked out of their homes because they were transgender. And still, I mean there's a lot plenty of this, but this was a big part of his patient population. Now, I have families coming in really ready to get the ball rolling, mm-hmm. or at least with open minds to talk about it. That was not the case, you yeah. know, 10 years ago. I mean, as a society, we're more... Tolerance not the right word. It's, I think what it is is we're the lay society taking the cue from the medical society to some extent. And it's going back and forth, mm-hmm. but as a medical society, we are getting smarter and realizing more and more that the science supports that. Gender is a spectrum, not binary. And as we learn more about the brain and genetics and and how those affect gender, and our perception of what gender is, then the lay population is starting to to get that. Um, Plus, when you know somebody personally who is a different race, a different gender, a different social background, then you are more open to Mm -hmm.
1: that. I think that's a good point. I think it's like you don't know what you don't know until you actually are asking questions and you're meeting people and you're making yourself maybe a little uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Then I think that's where people's stories really end up having an impact and whether or not it's just you leaving a conversation with more questions and willing to have an open mind about their life and where they're coming from.
0: I gotta keep reminding myself that we live in a bubble too. Because we're in the Twin Cities. Oh, absolutely. You know, and we kind of surround ourselves with people who think like us. And it's easy to start to think, like, everybody gets it now. And then we realize, oh, that's not really the case. Mm -hmm. And so we got to look for ways to do more outreach, I think.
1: What is the biggest misconception that the public holds about the families and the children that you attend to?
0: man. I can give you the answer only from my perspective. I That's mean, good. Only the families can really answer that. But, yeah. But based on what I read on both sides of the issue and then my knowledge of my family's, it's going to sound silly, but the bathroom stuff, it's, <laughs> it's sort of representative of how ridiculous the fear is or the misconception is. But also it's something we have to sort of talk about respectfully and try to not... You know, I just use the word ridiculous because that's how it feels to me. Yes. But So these kids are not, not only are they not predators, they have no desire. And I'm talking about the young ones all the way through the pre-adolescence, adolescence, young adults. These are not people who have any desire to even be seen, let alone expose themselves or confront people with their physicality, like with Mm -hmm. their body, with their genitals. Mm -hmm. These are people who deeply dislike their physicality Mm -hmm. with their body. And so the last thing they want is, you know, eyes on them in that way. So these are people who just want to be respected and treated like everyone else and be able to use the locker room, the bathroom, the whatever, that corresponds with who they are. Mm -hmm. Because this is who they are. Who you are and who your gender is is in your brain. Body parts are body parts. They really aren't as relevant in children as people want to pretend they are. Mm-hmm, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. These are children. The parents' and the kids' voices are going to be like the most valuable for other people to hear who, mm-hmm. aren't, who aren't involved either because of their family or whatever. Sure. At the beginning, we were talking about unequal care, unequal health outcomes and how that's what led me to this. The biggest disparity between lgbtq kids and cisgender straight peers is that these kids are at such a higher risk of suicide depression anxiety substance abuse homelessness um, all, all kinds of adverse outcomes but it's not because there's something inherently wrong with them it's because of our treatment of them our perception our the way society engages with them if you can fix that part of it, you solve a huge problem mm-hmm. for a huge group of kids. And that takes me to where, where I was going before, which is it's just a no-brainer. You know, mm-hmm. I, um, if you make people feel whole, they're going to be happy. They're going to mm-hmm. contribute to society better. Everything will work out better. <laughs> yeah. What
1: a lovely way to end our talk. I love that. Thank you. Yeah. This, is, this is wonderful. start with you, Allison, is the story of you and your parenting and your child and, and what that journey has looked
2: like for you. Yeah, I can talk about that. It's not an easy story because it's fraught with parental mistakes, but I think everybody makes mistakes and we figure stuff out. And it started really young. So my, my child, when he was, um, he was born and we all thought he was girl. Uh, in 2003 and uh, we had a very joyful experience having you know saying we have a son and a daughter and, and we we're very excited about that my ex-husband and I and then as, as early as age three or so my what I thought was daughter started telling me that she was a boy and she would say things like don't call me daughter call me son or she would say I'm gonna be the daddy not the mommy when we oh. were playing We used to brush it off, and we'd actually laugh, but not in a mean way. It was more of a, isn't that adorable kind of laugh. Oh, isn't she cute? That's hilarious. She thinks she's a boy. That's adorable. And I was a tomboy growing up. So for me, that was regular. I mean, that made sense to me. I I could relate to that. But then it kept going. It didn't stop at age three. He was pretty persistent. Um, This child was very persistent in saying over and over again, I'm a boy, or... um, you could call me son. And we still didn't get it. And the thing was, I didn't understand at the time that kids could be transgender. I just didn't know. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, I didn't know. And when he got to be about seven, that's when things started to get really rough for hmm. us as a family because he was struggling so much uh, with mental health stuff. Hmm. And uh, we, we'd been seeing a therapist. And uh, we had a lot of really strong tantrums that would last a long time. It felt like the kid was either in rage mode or retreat mode, where he was completely silent and shut off from us. And it was very worrisome. As parents, we didn't know what was wrong. And uh, that went on for two years. And he had stopped saying anything about wanting to be a boy or anything like that. And he just was in rage and, and non rage So that
1: conversation sort of halted. It and did. Sort of this, emo- like more of this emotional side. Yeah
2: and uh even though at the same time that this was happening we had sort of slowly transitioned to buying all of his clothes from the boys department which i didn't think is remarkable at all you know wear what you want i don't care Mm -hmm. and getting short hair i don't care what you you know whatever but we still weren't understanding what was happening and then uh it was back to school we were at target of course because it always happens at target (laughs) We we, we were at Target. It always happens at Target. Yes. Doesn't it, though? (laughs) At least in Minnesota, I feel like that's true. A lot of (laughs) things happen, yes. Uh, We were at Target, and he comes to me with two packs of underwear, and one is the girl's version and one's the boy's version of the uh, Paul Frank monkey. Mm. And he's begging me. He said, look, they have it in boys. Can I have it? Can I have it? I want the boys' underwear. And I was kind of taken aback even though we have been shopping in the boys' department forever because, you know, underwear's really super personal. Nobody else sees it. It's not a fashion statement. It's internal. And so it made me pause and think, wait a minute, what is going on here? For whatever reason, that was the trigger. I don't know why. Um, but I still didn't understand because I went home and I Googled my daughter wants to wear boys' underwear. Don't Google. Wow. Don't, yeah. <laughs> don't Google that. Wow. Don't Google that because okay. it's, it's weird. It doesn't come back with the results you think it might come back with. I'm just saying. But you were at
1: a point where the set of information that you were, I mean, I don't want to use the word, like you were at a point of desperation. Like, but Oh, you for one, sure. Maybe you were where you wanted to, like, what are resources? What does this
2: mean? Is anybody else going Yeah, and also, this? why is this kid so unhappy? Mm-hmm. That was the biggest driver for me. Why is this kid so unhappy? And I was so terrified it was something like someone touched her you know him or something happened and we didn't couldn't figure it out so we i mentioned this to his therapist the following week the therapist at our next session gave us this slip of paper that said the transgender child was the name of a book and i was like what that's a thing and so i of course immediately go home and i order the book and uh start reading online about kids who are transgender and it was like my kid. It was talking about my kid. Everything that I read. How did that feel? I was relieved. Mm. A lot of people think that there's this, and it's probably true. I mean, every parent's journey is different, but there's this period of mourning. Like, I'm mourning the loss of my daughter or some sort of such mm. business, but uh, that didn't happen for me. My first emotion was relief. Oh my gosh, I think we're onto something here. This might, I mean, and that reeling back in my head all of his life and all of these touch points where I was like, oh, I wish we could have a do-over on that one and, you know, all that. So I was relieved and then um, really hopeful that that things would get better for him, and they did. Uh, It it took a while, and we, of course, you get this information, and it's not like you can turn to your kid and say, guess what, you're transgender, Mm -hmm. because that's, how do I know that? Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know that. I'm just gathering information. So that, that becomes another sticking point. I mean, do you I don't mean to interrupt, but I'm just curious,
1: like once you sort of were in this frame of mind now, was there a conversation?
2: Is that necessary to have a conversation or does that just sort of unfold know, naturally? I think it's different for everybody. Mm-hmm. I think for us, we were in a situation where we had a super, super depressed, unhappy kid and it felt like we needed to say something. So uh, my ex-husband and I, and he's been amazingly on board and uh, we've had nothing but support from our family, which is wonderful. That is. Because that's not the story with everybody. No, not even close. We're just incredibly lucky to have such a great support network. But yeah, it was, I felt like we had some sort of secret answer that we weren't telling him. I don't share his birth name out of Mm -hmm. respect for him. He doesn't like that. and, And most trans people don't like that. Uh, tip (laughs) Okay. so how do we do this how do we introduce this topic and if we say the word is it going to make him transgender if I say the word transgender is that going to make him transgender instead of him already being transgender and then knowing the word which is irrational because if you think about it if you walk up to any old kid on the street and say hey you're transgender they'd be like what are you talking about but I, I was literally I was scared of that so I sat down with him And I remember I said, did you know that there are kids in the world that were born with girl parts and everybody thought they were a girl and everybody called them a girl but inside their heads and in their hearts they were a boy? And he looked at me with these huge eyes and he said, like me? Ugh. And of course my heart was beating a mile a minute and Mm -hmm. I was really scared but also hopeful that we were helping him finally. Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, buddy, like you. And it, it very quickly progressed from there. Okay. So we moved from calling him his birth name, and we didn't use any pronouns at all because um, he didn't like the she pronoun, but it was really super hard not to say the she pronoun because mm-hmm. we have been saying it all his life. And that lasted maybe six to nine months, and then he said, I'm ready. And we, we did it. He transitioned, and then he the following year he transitioned at school. So,
1: do you mind sharing a little bit about that?
2: Sure. Um, we had a summer where we became quite used to having this happier kid, who would—it who, was just night and day difference. And all of these diagnoses that he had, um, he literally had oppositional defiance disorder and, you know, ADHD, and all these diagnoses were gone. I'm not saying that he's—it was a miracle cure because this is a kid who had built up walls for so many years that, uh, you know, he still has some work to do, but. Mm-hmm. We could throw away the crisis hotline number. It was, it was a miracle. Mm-hmm. Um, that year, fifth grade, we worked with Minneapolis Public Schools to transition. And uh, one of their great uh, folks there is Jason Bucklin. He's coordinator for um, their Out for Good service, which is exclusively for LGBT students in awesome. Minneapolis Public School District. We did this training for the entire school they went through a, a training for half a day so that they could understand a little bit more about what was going to happen. And and I think now that this was before uh, trans kids were really in the news and everything, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. there wasn't very much exposure, and I didn't know, and so we were worried that folks at the school wouldn't know. So we did a lot of training. And then the day came when it was the first day of school, and I wanted to go to, you know, Mama Bear, I want to oh, keep you safe sure. and everything. And he's like, no. You're not coming. This is not for you. The, I'm doing this by myself. And I was like, <gasps> <gasps> okay. Wow. Yeah, fifth grade, oh 10 years God. old. He was like, this is it. I got this. Yeah, and this is how it went. He went into the school, same school he'd been with at since kindergarten, so everyone knew him as uh-huh. his birth name. Um, fifth grade, they were doing introductions in their fifth grade classroom, going around saying their names and everything. And, and he stood up and he said, I know you all have known me as birth name, but in my head and my heart, I'm a boy, so I'd appreciate it if you'd call me just from now on. That was it. That that's, was his transition.
1: That's incredible. Did he feel like that was respected as far as his school and his
2: peers? For the most part, yes. Uh, they did this wonderful thing. Uh, his teacher, his fifth grade teacher, was just amazing and thought of all these great ways to make things okay. And one of the things was they had this program called Star of the Week. So each kid was the star of the week, and they got to lead the line or whatever. Mm-hmm. But one of the things they did was every kid, when you're the star of the week, you put your picture on the bulletin board, and every kid has to write something nice on a note card and put it on the bulletin mm-hmm. board. And then at the end of the week, he brings home these note cards, you know, in his backpack, and I'm leafing through them. And I started to bawl because, like, five or six of them said he is brave. Which was, you know, amazing Ugh. to see that. He is. Yeah.
1: Imagine what he's going to do with his story. It's amazing. Yeah. Thank you for sharing.
2: And I've seen a lot of different parents, and I've talked to a lot of different parents of transgender children or kids who are just coming out, kids who are questioning. I'm lucky because, for some reason... I haven't had some of the struggles that that Mm. they have had Mm -hmm. I I see a lot of grief and I see a lot of tears And and, uh, and for some reason I just Mm. didn't have that experience I don't know, I think the best way to put it is I have the same kid before and now Mm -hmm. Nothing's changed Mm -hmm. I remember one time I said to him Do you ever miss being birth name? And he said, no mom, I really don't, not at all And then he paused for a little bit, and then he said, to me, do you ever miss having a daughter? And he's 10 when he says this to me. And I looked at him, and I could honestly answer and say, no, but I don't, because you're right here. Here you are. You're the same kid I've always known and loved. There's nothing different about you, except for we use a different name. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Otherwise, you're the same kid, so there's nobody to miss. You're right here. Mm -hmm. And I, it's so hard for me to understand when I talk to parents who struggle more than I do that they can't see that very same thing. I, th- I think there's a, a challenge in
3: differentiating between the dream and the actual person. Mm. That once you are told what your baby's sex is and the presumed gender there's a whole lot of hope and expectations and planning and excitement that goes into that. You know, you start thinking about who they're gonna be as adults, you know, what kind of family, you you know, this this whole narrative emerges Uh Uh from someone randomly assuming that this is who your child is based on their genitals. Uh And different people are able To separate those two pieces easier Mm -hmm. than others. I still think what if I still had a boy? There's that what if, Mm -hmm. but the what if can't compare in my world, in my family, to having the child I have today, Mm -hmm. to having a happy, healthy, well-adjusted person who feels whole. Uh And that's the kid I want. Uh Not this fantasy kid. You know, it's kind of like fantasizing about like an ex-boyfriend. It's easy to fantasize because there's so many maybes in there that don't factor in reality. Uh And so for me, you know, hearing your story, Allie, You went through so many experiences that really kind of humbled you as a parent. Absolutely. And that humility, I think, is key to embracing a transgender child. Mm -hmm. It's not about you, it's not about what you want in terms of imposing an identity on another person. It's about recognizing this is who's in front of me and this is what they need. Mm -hmm. And getting the ego out of the way, I think, is both the hardest part Mm
1: -hmm.
3: of this parenting journey and the most important part. That it's not about me. It's not about what my dreams were at the ultrasound.
2: Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's so freeing. It is. And because when you learn to do that about your child and about expectations, when you learn to let go of expectations in general, your life becomes so much easier right. and uh, freer. And you see your children in a different way. And you see these these wonderful beings as who they really are and not as, um, as you said, what you your hopes and dreams are when, when you decided to have children when yeah. you got married. Right.
1: Martha, can you share with us your story?
3: Sure. I've had a bit of a different journey, and and I should kind of preamble this with Allie and I are both parents of trans kids who identify much more on the binary in terms of a male identity or a female identity, and we're speaking to our experiences as parents as part of the trans community there's more families than just those of binary identifying children. There's kids who are gender non-conforming or who don't neatly fit into a specific male or female, that they're more gender fluid or they're just simply non-binary. And that's probably a different conversation because those parents have had very different journeys than what Allie and I have had. I'm the the parent of a 10-year-old trans girl, and she was always, as we like to say, very sparkly (laughs) and very fabulous. (laughs) And She has an older brother, and from the moment she could have an opinion about what she would wear, it was not her brother's hand-me-downs she would pick maybe the dog shirts Mm -hmm. or the the more graphic shirts but definitely not the dump trucks Mm -hmm. not the power tools none of that Um, she went for the purple she went for the glitter she went for the sparkle Mm -hmm. but I mean that those are kind of cosmetic things but we really had fun with it my husband is from Mexico and remarkably he was super open to it you know, he grew up with a lot of brothers and sisters. And so you can imagine there was a lot of diversity in siblings. And so there wasn't a lot that a kid could do that would surprise or startle him. So I I think I married the right guy Um, for the right kid. And um, so very early on, she would play with dump trucks, but it was only to put her my little ponies in and to move them around the living room. <laughs> you know so everything was converted into a horse trailer. and everything was put into a purse. You know, one of our favorite pictures is when she's about two and a half, and it's like a couple of weeks before Christmas and she's holding a little clear bag over her elbow. And she's like, it's my purse. And it's packed with ponies and (laughs) dolls and everything else. And it just kind of grew in intensity as she had more opportunity to express an opinion in what clothes we bought or to ask for clothes. It was just starting to skew much more female identifying. Mm. And we struggled not so much within our family, but with how do we protect her publicly. And so we went along a path that a lot of parents go with. You can wear this at home, but when we go out, we're going to do this. You know, you can wear a dress in home, but not out in public. And around the time of preschool, so around three, we knew there were some things going on and I had a professional history working in social services. So I worked with a lot of LGBTQ Uh kids prior to having a kid. And so there was enough going on where I was like, I feel like I need to talk to somebody. And so I knew of professionals Uh in the field that I could tap. So I I was kind of lucky in that sense where I wasn't floundering for information. It was more kind of like, I think I need to make the call. And so I connected with the U and they have a program in sexual health. And I went through the biographies and I found a therapist there who specialized in pediatric gender and connected with her. And she confirmed what my husband and I were thinking is that... At the very least, she is, at the time, she is identifying as female. Mm -hmm. But the U tends to be very conservative about how they talk about transgender kids Mm -hmm. and what the approach is. And so for about... year? No, it was longer than that. It was maybe about two years because it went into elementary school. Okay. We followed the advice of, you know, be very conservative. Don't paint your kid into a corner they can't get out of. Keep your child's identity as neutral as possible. And, and, and so it's like, we, we were taking this information in, but at the same time, if you'd seen pictures of back then, I mean, she completely presented as a girl. We failed in that respect. <laughs> but part of it was, it, it's like, it's just close. It's like this, she was so unhappy. Uh huh you know, to to channel her into a male appearance. It's like, I can't do this. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like withholding food or or Mm -hmm. something. It was clearly an essential part of my child's life. In the meantime, she's dressed head to toe in rainbow sparkles and unicorns and ponies, but we're still using male pronouns. And it (laughs) was probably the two most miserable years of our life where... We were always constantly having to explain to people, she's a boy who likes girl things. They, The people who misgendered her kind of were embarrassed and horrified that they thought she was a girl, but she's really a boy. And um, so they were horrified. And then kids were confused. Her brother was acting out because... None of the kids were going... Well, some of them were, but most of them were going to her brother and being like, what is she? Mm-hmm. Is she a boy? Is she a girl? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and he's, like, There's some six. Pressure, yeah. Th- those are some heavy questions to have to explain because he didn't really understand right. what was going on either. And s- her preschool was super supportive. They, they just loved her, you know, the-, the kind of kid that every teacher loves to have. So... We were blessed to be in a district, to have teachers, to be in classrooms where there was this incredible protectiveness Mm -hmm. about around where people just initiated very kind of protective measures. But even as a four-year-old and a five-year-old, she was so acutely aware of her otherness. So like, for instance, in preschool, We were still using male pronouns, but she presented as a girl. Uh And I hadn't thought about the bathroom situation. Oh, sure. Sure. And her teacher said that her class, these little five-year-olds, figured out a system for her. And so she didn't want to go in the boys' bathroom. And the kids didn't think... It was safe to, for her to go into the boys' bathroom. Like, these little five-year-olds are like, she should go in the girls' bathroom. And so she would wait until, all because, you know, you line up the kids yeah. to go in the bathroom. She would wait until all the girls had finished using the bathroom at their break, and then she would go in by herself she had she, she figured, had kind of figured, figured it out. out, and then the other kids supported it. Yeah. And so there was one time where an older kid who knew that she was technically a boy and mm-hmm. saw her going into the girl's bathroom and, like, yelled, like, hey, you're going in the wrong bathroom, and her whole classroom kind of rose up, and they're like, she uses this bathroom. This is the right bathroom for her, and you leave That's her alone. Now. And, yeah, and, and they...
1: Another reason we should have out. more children at the table with their ideas. Right. So we kind
3: of limped along with that until about until she's about six. And then I was like, this is ridiculous. It's really ridiculous. Did um, you feel
1: just like this is exhausting for It, it was her exhausting
3: for everybody. And well, and she felt she felt like every time the whole gender and identity thing came up that people just stared at her crotch. Ugh. Yeah. So it, it was just constantly traumatizing yes, like and over outing and over. for her multiple times a day. And finally, it was just, I, I was on a, a drive home with her from a riding lesson. And I, I just asked her, like, how do you see yourself as an adult? Like, hmm. when you're grown up. Who do you see yourself as? You know how those car uh-huh. conversations uh-huh. are best conversations right. ever. Yeah. <laughs> and she started telling me about how she saw herself as this professional woman and she was gonna be a chemist, and she was going to adopt these kids, and she was gonna be a great mom. And that's when I realized that this wasn't like sparkles and tennis shoes. Was, it was kind of like Allie in the underwear how you see yourself mm-hmm. is so intensely personal and it wasn't a fantasy it's not like this is what I want to be for Halloween right this is her telling me who she is and like in her soul and her heart right right and that's when I knew that we needed to move forward forward and so that night I told my husband I was like we need to, to make the pronouns match. I was like I'm done with the quote unquote professional advice because it's destroying our family and it's destroying my child and we need to follow our own instincts at this point. And my husband was like Absolutely and this was one of our bigger parenting mistakes. We <laughs> <laughs> I um I can't relate. I'm sorry. We the parenting we, mistakes <laughs> We pulled aside, and and we're like, are you ready to use girl words now instead of boy words? And she was like, yes. And we're like, let's do this. Let's get this ready for schools over the summer. So we're like, for second grade, you're going to be fully a girl. She was so happy. Mm. And she hugged us, and she ran off. And then we pulled her brother in, and this is the big mistake. Because we were just like, okay, we just talked We're going to start using girl words with her. That's kind of how it's going to be. And he was so mad. And he started crying. And that's when I realized that we've been having all these conversations, Mm -hmm. but not with him. And we were so concerned with navigating her peace that we forgot that he is a big, part of this transgender journey too like uh-huh. you know I always tell people it's not so much that she transitioned like she's always been who she's been we've uh-huh. never stopped her from this is being who she is but the rest of us transitioned it's so true the, the rest of us had to change how we saw her and referred to her and supported her uh-huh. That's the real trans in this, uh-huh. is our family. That's um, such a good point. With that. And so I went back after that huge <laughs> debacle and apologized to him. Huh. And told him basically what I just said here is, I just made a huge mistake. And this is a big change and it affects you because you're suddenly going from having a brother to a sister Mm -hmm. and I should have respected you more and brought you into this earlier so what I did was I told him I understand this is probably going to take some time for you to adjust to and you use the pronouns that you need to use in the meantime in our home we just ask that you respect her in public. Mm-hmm. Uh, and whenever you're ready to make the change at home, you can do that. You, you take it in your own time.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And he said that helped a lot, that he just needed some space. About a day later, he came back, and he was like, okay, I'm ready. Mm-hmm. Meantime, she came back in tears. And she said she didn't want to transition, that she didn't want to lose us, that she didn't want to stop being our kid, and that it was too big of a jump. And I realized that she was thinking about losing all of the relationships with the change in pronouns and gender, that she thought... That she would literally she have to—that she would have to just start all over again. So you know, people think that we <laughs> people transition their kids like lightly without <laughs> things, and, and it's hard even for a kid who's transitioning because as a child they're having to recalibrate all of their relationships and how they see themselves in relationship to uh-huh. each other. Because she had a loving relationship with us as a son, and suddenly. As exciting as it sounded she realized she was going into uncharted waters as a daughter at what age 7, Seven. yes mm-hmm. and and so i ended up telling her kind of the same thing you you take your time this this is your life and we're here to help you however you want to do this if you want to keep using boy pronouns you can do that if you want to change girl pronouns if you want to think about changing your name we know we'll help you do that too and in a couple days it actually took her longer to come around but she came back and she was like I'm ready to be a girl now and once she transitioned it was liberating because suddenly the appearance and the pronouns and the insides and the outsides all aligned and she was already a happy kid, but the anxiety was gone. The The cloud of worry was gone from her. And her brother probably made the biggest leap because he went from having to be her explainer mm. to being her advocate. advocate. And that was a role that he could happily take on. That... Mm. Suddenly, he wasn't having to explain, like, confusing things. He could just be like, this is my sister. Whether you like it or not, this is my sister, and this is her name, and this is how you respect her.
1: That's remarkable.
3: Just before school started, though, we had a really bad experience at camp. She had We just decided to transition her. Okay. She yeah. went to summer camp with St. Paul Public Schools, and we had met with the staff beforehand and uh-huh. explained... You know, she's transgender and she presents as a girl, she identifies as a girl, you know, this is the name she wants to use. And they were like, absolutely, you know, we'll keep it confidential. And she ended up being outed very horribly by a staff person at camp in front of the other kids. And wow. um, St. Paul schools would not hold the staff person accountable. It it was terrifying and traumatizing on so many levels. And it revealed how powerless a parent can be
1: Hmm.
3: facing a major system, like a school. And it showed me in an instant how important it was for me to have legal protections in place for my child. Hmm. So, as fast as I could, we changed her name legally. We changed her gender marker on her birth certificate and updated her passport in about four months. Like, pretty much as fast Fast as as we possibly could. And her social security card, too. Because I never, ever, ever wanted anyone to be able to challenge who she is
2: huh. or who she will be huh. and yeah we as parents of kids who are transgender fight these kinds of battles all of us every one of us in some form or another multiple times uh, throughout our kids lives we have to be advocates because uh first of all you have to explain yourself and your child everywhere you go so if you let's say your child burns their hand And you go to the emergency room. Suddenly, there's also this explaining you have to do regarding um, your child and and the fact that they're transgender and what their name is and, um, you know, that you might encounter unexpected parts that you wouldn't see in other kids. So there's that. Then there's the whole advocacy around getting adequate health care for your kid.
1: Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah. As far as what you have seen as parents... In your journey, the medical community's response, and what did that look like maybe before? Do you feel like there's progress with that? And what is the most important part of that progress for you
2: guys? When we were, uh, the first thing that I did was research. And I, I spent a ton of time researching it to the point where I felt like I knew more than most, almost every doctor I talked to. And then once you get to that point, you're like, okay, well, who can help us? and then you start researching different places that maybe you can take your child. And We're in the Twin Cities. Uh, there are, what, three places? Yeah. And at the time when I was researching, there was one, which was the U, that so I knew is, of.
1: I'm sorry, what is there now? There's the U, the
2: U there's tree. Family and tree. Family
1: Tree. And Gillette? Does
3: children, Gillette have something? They
2: did. Okay suffice to say there's, there's very few and all of the all of the we do a ton of networking among parents who are who uh, have kids who are transgender so we all know the the places and yeah. as soon as we hear that another one opens or, or that someone else is looking into uh, practicing uh, medicine for trans youth, we get really excited because the wait lists are at least a year long everywhere.
3: And it's not just seeing an endocrinologist who specializes in PEDS, who also has an understanding of of trans health issues, but there's also a mental health component too because that's also required as part of this. And so identifying a mental health professional who works with kids is already daunting for anyone who has a kid with mental health needs. You know what I'm talking about. But then to add trans on top of that, which is kind of crazy making, not, that's not the right word, infuriating mm-hmm. and frustrating and angering that being trans is considered
2: a mental health uh-huh. issue. Yeah, it's wrong. Let's just flat out say it. Yes. And the only reason that I even allow that to be part of what's happening is because there are codes that allow us to get insurance coverage and we need insurance coverage for for things like uh, hormone suppressants Mm -hmm. so we play the game to get them right so in order for our child
3: to receive treatment they have to not only be seen by an approved physician but they also have to be under the active care of a mental health professional whether or not they actually have true, legitimate mental health needs. (laughs) Right. And and, and so it's not just incredibly burdensome for families who are trying to support their children and and get them the care that they need, but it is incredibly expensive. Uh Yes. And being trans and being a supported trans child is a statement of economic class. It absolutely in, is. In, in this country. That if That's you really are career, middle class, if you are wealthy, if you have parents who understand how to navigate the system, how to advocate for this, it will happen. If, if you don't, there's a much different path mm-hmm. for your life. Because if you have... Uh, Elementary age trans kid, your overwhelming concern is puberty. Mm -hmm. And what are you going to do about this? Mm -hmm. And how can we manage a change from becoming a crisis? Mm -hmm. And if your parents aren't resourced, if you don't have health insurance that covers this, if you're not in a state that doesn't support
2: Medicaid. (laughs) <laughs> very, yeah, effectively, it it's almost insurmountable. Yeah, it is, especially when you think about. Uh, so my kid is super privileged, very privileged, and we had a six month legal battle to get uh, hormone suppressants approved for him, even though the company I work for at the time um, only supported uh, transgender benefits for those other over eighteen. So I would I had this legal battle that mm-hmm. I went through, where. They kept saying, well, your child can have this treatment when they're 18. And I and I kept saying, you are completely un- not understanding what's happening here because by the time my child's 18, puberty will He's have over. come and gone. And it would be too late. And guess what? My kid's transgender and not 18. And what are you going to do don't. about that? And uh, it resulted in a very laborious and uh, painful Appeals process with insurance companies, which are never fun. But we got it. You know, we, we finally worked it out. It was hundreds of hours of work, but we did it.
1: But you're right, wasn't think about the people who don't. And this is something I totally missed, even like in my questions, thinking yeah. coming up to this conversation. Think about the families that don't right. have those resources, don't know how to navigate. Where do they go? What do they do?
3: Right. Well, and I, I'm especially aware of this as a black woman who's yeah. married to a man who immigrated from Mexico and I look around in my fellow family trans community and I'm often the only face of color
2: Hmm.
3: that the the activist parent community is overwhelmingly white yeah you see occasional families pop up, like the author of My Princess Boy, mm. um, but I don't know if, if they even identify as trans at, at, at this point. And so it's painful for me to, to feel so isolated mm-hmm. in, in, in that respect. I love my community. I wish it was more diverse. I know a lot of that speaks
2: to the culture of economic class. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then if you just think about the drugs that we're trying to get, we're looking at hormone suppressants, to source those on your own, it's not possible. It's oh. They're between one and $4,000 per month, the, the treatment. Wow. I couldn't aff- I mean, we can't afford that as a family. We needed insurance coverage. Certainly other families who, who aren't, who don't have the kind of resources that I have, there's no way. There's no way. Okay. And, and they're so life-changing because if you can imagine being a young person kid and heading towards puberty and being terrified of that experience and knowing that this is going to fundamentally change everything everything for you but there's a way to fix it and you can't have that fix it's heartbreaking it's heartbreaking there's so much more we could talk about
1: in regards to your stories and what you feel is important what would be something that you would like people to know about this topic about these kids about your community
3: to find us to find transforming families transforming families minnesota is a parent founded parent-led community of Mm -hmm. trans families and their children and their parents and it's a lifeline. It pulls families in from throughout the region, the Midwest region. It's not just like a Twin Cities thing. It's not a Minnesota thing. People drive in from Iowa and Nebraska and Wisconsin and uh South Dakota. And there's communities like this growing up online and in other places of the country. But honestly, I don't know how I would have navigated this without the support of other parents who are living this alongside with me. I mean, of course, there's Google. There's online information. It's not the same. It's not the same. There's not the context. There's not the advice. There's not the cautions. um, And there's not the hugs and the tears and everything
2: else. There's something magical about that first time you walk into a Transforming Families meeting. I remember my first meeting so well. George was 10, and we'd been looking for a year for something, anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were alone, I thought. And we found them, and it was kind of, I was in awe, sort of like I was meeting famous people. <laughs> you know, it felt like that. Whoa, you have a trans kid too? And you know Whoa, what you're doing. you're trans? <laughs> I know. Yeah. Wait, you already know what you're doing? Wait, what's happening? <laughs> yeah. And uh, the, the biggest gift that Transforming Families gave to me was totally normalizing everything Like, I don't even really think about George being trans anymore. It's so not an everyday thing. It's so the least interesting thing about him, really. (laughs) And... uh, wouldn't it be great if that was the way the world was? Yes. That it was just regular? It's like, oh, this is just the variation of human you are, so mm-hmm. here are the steps we can take to make this easier for you, and yeah. we'll send you on your way, and well, nobody the, bats an eyelash. At the end of the day, we,
1: the three of us were sort of talking up there about this, but wanting our kids to be happy, mm-hmm. and what Martha said is like wanting other kids to be happy. It just seems like a no-brainer at the end of the day. As a parent just want my kids to be happy. And when I see other kids that I love in the world as a human, I just want them to be okay. I want yeah. them to be happy, and I want them to feel like they're contributing
2: and that they are respected and they are loved. Well, there's nothing worse than to watch a kid suffer. Mm-hmm. And working and advocating in the field of uh, trans youth, you see that every day. And often, most of the time... Frequently, it's at the hands of their parents, okay. and I can't. It, again, I said this at the beginning, but it's so hard for me to wrap my head around. I had that point, the decision point in my life where I, I could go on and keep pushing this daughter thing, and and I have a girl, and this is a daughter, and this is how it's going to be, and we're going to just force this upon you, or I'm going to embrace who you are, and that was easy. Mm-hmm. I don't. It's very hard for me when I see other kids struggle so much with their families, especially.
1: I want to thank you both for sharing your story and being such champions, not only with your own children, but in this community. I can't wait to see what both of these kids end up doing in their lives. It's that a makes, testament to you guys as parents. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All of us. Thank so, you for inviting us. Yeah, thank thank you. you for your stories. Thanks, yeah. Hans and I want to thank you for listening to this episode of Parent Town. Again, please check out our website, www.parent-town.com and share it with your friends. You can also find us on Stitcher and iTunes, so check that out. Huge thank you to our guests, Dr. McGee, Allie, and Martha. And another thank you to my brother-in-law, Eric, for all his help with the website. Greg, who is magical and makes us sound much better than we naturally do. If you're interested in the organization that Ali and Martha mentioned, Transforming Families in Minnesota, their link will be on our website as well. You can check them out at transformingfamiliesmn.org. Thank you for listening, everyone.